This is Unfun at Parties, your podcast for knowing more about the world around you. I'm Parth Shukla. This episode, we look into the world of video games, how they may help us fight COVID-19, and how they potentially act as a threat to society. A video game is an electronic game that involves interaction with the user interface played on a video device. Pretty self-explanatory. While video games may or may not be works of art is up for debate, but they can be the reason why a lot of students may end up graduating from art school. Today, Video games are being used by scientists, the military, and everyday people like you and me. While today, every 5-year-old with an internet connection is able to catch Pokemon while on the toilet seat, video games actually emerged out of yet another science lab. And since they were created in a science lab, it still had its veil of pretense on and was initially called a cathode ray tube amusement device. If you don't know what a cathode ray tube is, it's basically the technology our televisions operated on before they all collectively decided to go on a diet. Some of the first video games include the Nimrod computer, Tennis for Two, and Space War. To play video games back in the day, you needed a couple hundred thousand dollars and a warehouse big enough to store your computer. For that much, you can buy around 800 new iPhones. I'm pretty sure some Bangladeshi click farm already has, only their warehouse is probably smaller. This extreme pricing and a lack of mobility was also the reason these video games failed to ever be sold to the public. In 1972, a visionary named Ralph Bear, aka father of video games, aka Video Daddy Bear, came out with a video gaming console called Odyssey. Odyssey allowed the user to play a video game on their TV screens. While Odyssey hit the screens, Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney were also working on a similar project in their small company called Atari. Do you know how fun a human being do you have to be to not only form one of the world's first video game companies but also start Chuck E. Cheese? Because Nolan Bushnell does. That's true. Atari went on to release Pong, a game that not only ushered in a new era of gaming but also would go on to inspire countless projects in any given computer science class. With the coming of the 80s, something just as addictive as cocaine was about to hit the streets. Pac-Man. In the coming year, it would go on to make about a billion dollars in quarters alone and making arcade owners feel like Scrooge McDuck. Soon came in Nintendo with games like Donkey Kong and Super Mario Brothers, with the golden age of arcade gaming. Alas, people became lazier and instead of going to arcades, brought the arcade home in the form of a gaming console. 
Game Boys, Playstations, Xboxes, the Apple Pippin. Actually, no one really played that last one. Turns out, Apple computers were just as bad for playing games back in the day as they are today. Just as the distance between arcades and houses reduced, soon enough, with the evolution of video games, the gaming console turned into a portable console, then hit your mobile phone, and fit today's VR technology, it is literally what you see. In this time period, apart from increasing the sales for Doritos and Mountain Dew Code Red, they've given rise to multiple industries, beautiful stories, and many tournaments with prize money that puts Formula 1 racers to shame. They've also managed to connect people in ways that were never possible before. Video game companies today have created entire worlds online. These games called MMORPGs or massively multiplayer online role-playing games have allowed people to go on and live an alternate life, interact with people, make friends, and do so many such other things that they would not be able to do in their real lives. These games are so intricate and complex that they can even mimic real life to a certain extent. And surprisingly enough, one such game may help us combat COVID-19. I'm actually being serious right now. The game of World of Warcraft had an event called the Corrupted Blood Incident in 2005 when the cities of Ogremar and Ironforge were devastated with a plague. It soon spread to other cities which skyrocketed the number of people who were affected. It was not long before over 4 million players were affected by the outbreak. As fake as the cities of Ogremar and Ironforge may have been, the disease was most definitely real even though it may have only existed on the online servers of World of Warcraft. And in the years following the plague, researchers published several peer-reviewed papers about the unusual event to study how people behave when they are faced with an outbreak. This disease mimicked a real-life pandemic in several ways, including how it spread. The rich, powerful players could get away easily as they could transport into a new area without the spread of the disease. The disease would spread from player to player when they were in close proximity. The players were able to spread the disease faster as some of them could teleport, kind of like the hazards of modern day air travel. And there were non-playable characters who could have the disease and spread it but would not die from it, sort of mirroring the idea that people who do not show symptoms can also spread the disease. Getting the pandemic under control became extremely hard. Voluntary quarantines proved ineffective, and the company behind World of Warcraft had to eventually restart the servers. Multiple papers were written about how the world of epidemiology could learn from the incident and researching the digital pandemic led to a better understanding of how people perceive threats and how differences in that perception can change how they behave. 
The corrupted blood incident has helped a lot of researchers with their predictive modeling around COVID-19. So over this time period, if you've been at home playing video games, don't feel bad about slouching around. You just might be helping science in the way. The only caveat being, the science you may be helping may not be the science you want to help. Data science. The current questions a game developer has on their mind is, how do you keep the player playing? How do you ensure they come back? How do you keep the player paying? Currently, video games are a hundred plus billion dollar industry. Smartphones have not only changed where we play games, but also who plays the games. The largest demographic of gamers in the United States is now adult women. Many of these players don't see themselves as gamers. They see themselves as players playing Candy Crush. Fair to say, this demographic also has a hard time seeing reality as it is. Games like these make money through microtransactions. Want to play another round or improve your looks and abilities? Pay some money and you're in business. And so is the game. The largest games today like Crossfire, PUBG and Fortnite are free to play yet they make billions of dollars each year. Turns out, companies make way more money in microtransactions than they ever did with the earlier model of a one-time payment. And the money doesn't come from your everyday casual gamer. It comes from a small group of big spenders that the world of gaming likes to call whales. Some of these whales may drop two, three thousand dollars a month on these games. And while these players are a tiny fraction of the total players, they can account for more than half their revenue coming in. What this means is gaming companies need to find these whales, nurture them and milk them to survive. How do companies do that? Well. They try to predict every move a player could make and see if they're happy or not. And then they do everything they can to keep them happy, feeling big and important, even if it means being the biggest fish in their own well. In the world of data, non-paying players are called krill and casual players are called dolphins. And the goal from day one of development is to keep the player moving up the food chain. With Google and Facebook, you know you're being watched, but with playing a video game, you think that may not be true since you're playing in your own private universe. But you end up giving much more information about yourself than you think. Every decision you make can be tracked. Use a yellow bird, crush a red candy, kill an old lady outside the club. They know exactly what you enjoy. This worry has way less to do with the violence we see on screens and a lot more to do with compulsive spending addictions. The whale analogy sounds like it comes out of Vegas. And it may not be a coincidence. Video games 
may not be only the future of entertainment, but also the future of gambling. From saying, hey, pay $10 and here's what you get. Video games are turning and saying, hey, pay $1 and we'll see what you get. And that's where the problem starts. With the rise in loot boxes or whatever you call in your own context, the idea is pretty much the same. You pay and you either win or more likely you lose. This game. You can now see where it starts to look like a gambling issue. The ability to suck money out of people and children has become so advanced that in countries like Japan, certain game designs have been banned to prevent the users from being grifted away. Unlike casinos and slot machines, these games don't have age restrictions. And unlike slot machines, the games of today can study what it takes to keep you playing or what it takes to keep you spending. What game companies will be allowed to do with this information they can extract from their user base is definitely a problem for the future. If you're not paying for the product, chances are you are the product. Keep that in mind the next time you're not paying for something. Until then, happy gaming. Thank you for listening to Arm Fun at Parties, written, edited, and produced by me, Parth Shukla. This episode was recorded out of my brother's walk-in closet in the cold Berlin, Germany. Follow this podcast on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. Hope you had fun, and I'll see you in the next one.